Hello, and welcome to the Church on the Hill podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, we invite you to join us live this Sunday at 500 Sands Drive in San Jose, California. Visit churchonthehill.com for service times and directions, and also to learn more about connecting, growing, and serving at Church on the Hill. Now let's join lead pastor Scott Simarok as he teaches at Church on the Hill. Welcome to week two of our brand new series called First the Worst. Uh, It's actually a a study in Mark, just in Mark chapter 10. So Mark chapter 10, open up there. Um, It it was after work. I had a long work day, and I came out of my office, and I walked into the lobby. And Pastor Josh was there with his wife, Katie, and uh, Addie and Grace. They're they're two girls. They were there. And uh, Grace, she's six years old. She walks up to me. He kind of looks me over with a little bit of attitude. Yeah, I wonder which parent she got that from. <clears throat> she goes, you want to race? Yeah, exactly. I knew what she meant. What she meant was, um, we're going to race around the bottom level of the hallways. It's a circular building, right? And so we're just going to go all the way around the building. You want to race? And so I, I looked her over. I thought, I can take you. <laughs> so I just started running and then said, ready, set, go. <laughs> we took off through the lobby. She was right behind me. We went down the hall right past Fellowship Hall, and I could hear the clack, clack, clack of her boots. That little six-year-old is fast, all right? We made it to the end of the hall. We made that really sharp right turn into the Fellowship Hall, and then a quick left-hand turn. And I did one of those, like, kind of trying to keep my balance around that sharp turn, and that nimble little six-year-old, like, boom, cut like one of the Incredibles, right? Made her way across Fellowship Hall. She was, like, right there with me. Another sharp turn out of Fellowship Hall, down the hallway. We're in the final stretch. Being an experienced runner that I am, I like to let them catch up right next to me so I can look them in the eye. And when I look them in the eye, that's when the jets kick in. They didn't call me white lightning in high school for nothing. And so I just threw it in overdrive. Left her in the dust. One by two body lengths. We made a little victory lap through the lobby, high-fived people, signed a couple autographs in the crowd. And I couldn't figure out why Josh and Katie didn't think it was that funny. Don't worry, she's fine. I gave her a participation trophy. See, the point was this. She could either look at me and be like, I could let her win, right? But if I let her win, she's going to look at me and be like, see, you're an old dude. I knew I could beat you. But now she's looking at me like, dude, you're an old dude, but you still got it. Right? Here's my point. We just like to be first, don't we? Come on. Don't you like to be first? You get to that red light and you're the first car. But the street is four lanes wide. Come on, some of you think like this. You get there, and there's cars in every lane. And you look at what kind of cars they are. And you think, I can take that car and that car, but that one over there on the edge, it looks, that Dodge Challenger, I don't know, whatever it is, it's inching up. And you feel the pressure, right? Don't you just want to be first at that point? Like first off the line, first to hit the first crosswalk, maybe first to the next light. Does no one think like this or is it just me? See, you know, I know that you think like this. We just like to be first. 
And if you don't think like this, you're just comfortable losing all the time. I think something inside of us not only likes to be first, but we like for other people to see us be first. For, um, for all of us in this moment, Jesus, he's in the final week of his life, and he's trying to teach his disciples this. First is the worst, and those who are last will be first. He makes this statement in Mark chapter 10, verse 31, if you have your Bibles open, 1031. It's towards the end of the chapter, and he, he simply says this, and Mark writes it down. He says, but many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. But it's interesting, because I think that that statement summarizes the whole chapter of chapter 10. And and there's three different scenarios that are happening there. The first is about marriage and divorce, and we covered this last week. And I actually invited you, would you take a 28-day challenge? Every day of the month of February, would you put someone else first by encouraging them, complimenting them, or serving them? And so I just said this, if you're married, make it your spouse. Compliment them, encourage them, put them first. One time every day that you are intentionally doing that. If you're not married, pick someone else, someone in your family or your whole family or a friend or a neighbor, and every day put that person first. And then we said this, would you put some accountability in your life? Would you text one person that's going to be your accountability partner, and it can't be your spouse, because it's weird when you're like, uh, yeah, did this really nice thing for you today. And so... Some of you have done that. I've been getting texts on my phone from uh, several men in our church, and uh, it's, it's been fun. So if you haven't, if you missed that, go back and watch it, 28 Days Challenge, right? Well, in this moment, in the text we're about to look at, Jesus shifts from the marriage relationship to kids. And he writes, he says this, it's in Mark 10, 13. I'm going to read the whole passage to you. It's not very long. This is what happens. It says, people were bringing little children to Jesus, verse 13, for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and he blessed them. So what's happening here? (laughs) What's happening is that the culture in the first century is very different than our culture today. When a family has a a baby, particularly if it's their first kid, it seems like the whole family centers around that kid, right? You got to get a new car because the car seat doesn't fit in the old car. And you got to get three strollers because there's different applications to every stroller, right? And there's a little college fund that's kind of set up and parents start looking for the best soccer club in town to make sure that when their kid hits the right age, they can, you know what I'm saying? Come on. Some of us are ridiculous because we center all of our lives around our kids. That was not the case in the first century. In the first century, it was so different because of this. The child mortality rate was really high. Did you know this, that in the first century, about 50% of kids never actually made it to their teenage years. They died. The, The society placed a different value on kids, and they didn't actually value them until they could contribute back to the family. Listen to this letter. There was a, a guy by the name of Hilarion, in, in, right about Jesus' day a little bit before him. And it's ironic because his name is Hilarion, which means uh, cheerful or joyful. Um, this is the letter he writes to his pregnant wife. A line in it says this, If it is a male child, let it live. 
If it was female, though, cast it out. You know what that means? It was this process of infanticide. It was when in the first century, for thousands or hundreds of years in the Roman Empire, if you had a child and you did not want it, you simply would leave it out in an area to die of exposure. Now, when Jesus died on the cross and was resurrected, which launched the church, Christians took this personally because of Jesus' words, and they would go to areas where people would leave their babies and take them and bring them back to their own homes because they knew God's tremendous value of kids. And it's directly related to this chapter. It says people were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. Now it's the assumption that it's actually the parents or maybe an older sibling that's bringing these kids to Jesus. And for good reason. With a mortality rate of 50%, they're just looking for God's touch. I mean, they've watched Jesus touch people, heal sickness, and they just want God's favor and blessing on their kids so that they might live. Now, the word for little children here, it, it's, a, it's a word in the Greek used for any kid that was 12 years old and under. But in this context, it seems to be babies or toddlers because in the very last verse it says that Jesus took them in his arms. That seems awkward to grab a couple 12-year-olds. And... So we have these babies, these toddlers who were brought to Jesus so that he could touch them and bless them. And the text says, but the disciples rebuked them. Mm. Are the disciples just cold-hearted baby haters? I think what they're trying to do is they're trying to protect Jesus, or at least protect his time. Now, this is just opinion. I'm just speculating on this, but it's worth speculating over for just a moment because Mark doesn't really tell us. See, people were always crashing Jesus' party. (laughs) They were showing up unannounced because they had needs. But up until this point in the story, every time someone crashed the party, every time somebody interrupted Jesus, they always had a dire medical need or a dire spiritual need. I mean, think back to all the stories you've read in the book of Mark. There was the guy who, who his friends lowered him through the roof of the, the, the house because they couldn't get him to Jesus, and he, he couldn't walk. There's a guy who had leprosy who, who called out to Jesus, and there was a, a, a parent who came and said, my son, he's got this evil spirit. You've got to help him. And then there's this one woman who stole a miracle from Jesus. He reached out and touched his robe, and, and her bleeding stopped, and she was healed. And so these, these parents are bringing these babies and toddlers to Jesus. And the disciples are like, listen, I don't see anybody bleeding. I don't see anybody dying. I don't see anybody demon-possessed. Back off. Jesus needs his space. And they're probably thinking he has more important things to do. So how's Jesus feel about his disciples pushing them off? It says when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. The word indignant, it's only ever used in the New Testament right here, and it's made up of two words, more and to grieve, or much grieving. He is much disturbed, grieving, bothered by this. Jesus Jesus has always valued people who are vulnerable. And in this moment, the disciples did not value People who were vulnerable the same way that Jesus did. Think about this for just a moment. If you were one of Jesus' disciples, he looks at you and says, listen, you're one of mine. You're my top 12. 
I'm actually going to go away, and I'm going to turn all this over to you. It's going to be your job to lead this mission. You're going to be my people. I'm going to empower you. And you're thinking, okay, man, I'm somebody important. I'm somebody who's going to be significant. I'm going to be an influencer in the kingdom of God. And at one point, he looks at you, and he goes, would you stop hindering the mission? hindering the mission. I've given my whole life. I gave up everything I used to do. I'm, I'm your crew. I'm your person. And he looks at you and he's like, you're getting in the way of what I'm trying to do. You get the weight of what he's telling his, his disciples? Here's the truth. Number one, it's in your notes there. Take a look at this. Christians who don't value the vulnerable can be obstacles to people finding Jesus. You're here at church because... You're either curious or you're already convinced that Jesus is the Son of God who died on a cross, resurrected, proving that he died for the forgiveness of sins. And you want to be an influencer. You want to help people's lives be changed. You want to introduce people to Jesus. But I think the truth is this, is we can sometimes become an obstacle to those very people wanting to come to Jesus when we do this, when we don't value the vulnerable. I think in our society... And by society, I don't mean like, oh, those people out there. I mean us, our Christian society. I think we value those who are like us and who like us. Can I say that again? I think we value those who are like us or who like us. We like to be liked. And we like people who are like us. We value those who can contribute and those who are easy to be with. We value people who have things in common with us and those that connect with us. And we can sometimes ignore or avoid those who are vulnerable. Two weeks from now, we have an event coming at our church. It's out in the parking lot. You already heard about it. It's called Meet the Challenge. Uh, There's an organization that they actually uh, do most of the work on this. They line it all up, provide us with the resources, and they actually bus 50 people up here to the hill Um, so that we could have a barbecue with them. And these people don't have a place to live. Sometimes they're picking them up from shelters, and they're bringing them up here, and they vet them, and we just share a meal. But maybe more important than that, we share a conversation. We share a relationship, even if it's just for the afternoon. We give a haircut, resources, some clothes, and some encouragement. To who? Well, without a place to live, it's to the vulnerable. But see, I think it's bigger than the 50 that are coming to the hill. I think what it does for you and me, it reminds us that we care for people who are vulnerable, and hopefully it does this for us. It opens our eyes to the people around us who are vulnerable. And it might not always be the homeless. Maybe you have neighbors who are easy to avoid and ignore. And I guarantee you, If you work in an office, there are some people in your office that are easy to avoid or ignore. Maybe it's even people in your own family or extended family who are easy to avoid or ignore. But remember this, the vulnerable, it doesn't always mean homeless and it doesn't always mean poor. It could be the poor in spirit. It could be the isolated, those who are alone, those, those who are physically vulnerable, emotionally vulnerable, spiritually vulnerable, relationally vulnerable. God cares for them. God loves them. God wants them to come to him, and he wants to use us to draw them and not be an obstacle. Here's what Jesus said next. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God 
belongs to such as these. I think Jesus is saying this, point number two. Every Christian should help the vulnerable find their place in God's family. D.L. Moody, he's a famous evangelist and pastor, and he led people to Christ. Uh, He led so many people to Christ. And he once returned from a meeting, and he reported, two and a half people got saved today. And his friend asked him, what was that, two adults and a kid? He said, no, two children and an adult. See, the children gave their whole lives to Jesus. The The adult, they only had half a life left to give. I mean, maybe he knew something about Jesus and the kingdom of God, and that kids have a special place in God's heart. I don't know if you know this, but um, Gallup did a survey. Do you know when majority of people come to follow Christ, when most people give their heart to Christ? Listen to this stat. 19 out of 20 people who became Christians did so before the age of 25. 19 out of 20. At the age of 25, only 1 in 10,000 will become believers. At the age of 35, it's 1 in 50,000. At the age of 45, it's 1 in 200,000. At the age of 55, it's 1 in 300,000. At the age of 75, it's only 1 in 700,000. Not only are kids vulnerable, but there's an openness to their faith in Jesus. So let me give you two quick thoughts on that. The first is this. Parents and anybody who's working with kids... We are never to manipulate or coerce a conversion prayer in the life of our kids. We lead them, teach them, love them, and put it in their lap when they decide, I want Jesus for myself. Second, what an unbelievable honor and privilege to be a part of leading our kids to know who Jesus is. Because right now in the classrooms all around this building, they're not babysitting. They're loving your kids and telling them about Jesus. And according to this story, it might be more important than the role that I have today. The role that our teachers and those that are loving on our students. What a privilege to take a kid with an open heart and an open mind and tell them about Christ. And I hope we see it that way. But I want you to notice this, that Jesus' statement isn't actually just about kids. Look back at that, that verse. It says, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. What does that mean? First, I think it means he's not just talking about kids. Second, I think it means actually the vulnerable. The kingdom of God belongs to those who are vulnerable, physically vulnerable, emotionally vulnerable, spiritually vulnerable, relationally vulnerable, financially vulnerable. I think to the weak, the harassed, the hurting, the lonely, and the broken, Jesus says, the kingdom of God is actually yours. And one day as you enter God's kingdom, your hurts, tears, and pains, they're going to be erased as you are restored, healed, and made whole. See, the vulnerable are often not too prideful to see that they need help. They're willing to reach out to God and receive him. One of Jesus' very first messages that his disciple Matthew wrote down starts like this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. It goes on and on and on about how blessed are the people who are vulnerable. Every Christian... If we're not going to be an obstacle, 
should help the vulnerable find their place in God's family. And you would think that Jesus has pretty much made his point and he's done, right? When he's simply repeating a message that he had already given his disciples in in the chapter before, in chapter 9, verse 37, it says, whoever welcomes one of these little children my name welcomes me. Whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. He's like, listen, welcome the kids. They have a special place in the kingdom of God. And he's kind of made that point. And you think, Jesus has got to be done. Repetition. The the disciples need it because sometimes they're, they're just, I don't know, short on memory. Maybe it's just about the kids. But then he says this. Truly, I tell you, the word there is amen. He's like, amen, truly, listen up. I'm about to give you a promise or I'm about to give you a warning. So listen up to this. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and he blessed them. Okay, don't miss this. Because this right here is the unexpected turn to the story. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Jesus isn't just saying value the children and help them find Jesus. He turned his message around to give us this, the vulnerability principle. And the vulnerability principle is this, you and me are the vulnerable. For any of us to receive the kingdom and enter it requires that we approach Jesus like a child with vulnerability. Parents, question. Um, How does your toddler approach you? Don't they approach you like this with their hands up? Pick me up. I need you. I want you. Hug. I know, maybe you got one of those toddlers like independent. What if your toddler said to you, Mom and Dad, I got this. Two-year-old, right? Two-and-a-half-year-old, three-year-old. I'll get my own ride home. I got this. In fact, Mom and Dad, I was thinking about moving out. I'll see you next Sunday for about an hour. Are we good with that? How long is that toddler going to survive? Not long at all. But listen to me. That's how people often approach God. Don't worry, God. I got this. I'll see you for an hour on Sunday. How do they spiritually survive? They don't. I want you to see this about Jesus' words. He says, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Being a Christian according to this, has two parts. The first is this. The kingdom must be received. It's a gift to be received, not earned. We can't think that God loves us because we have something great to offer. Oh my gosh, your skills are so amazing. You code like nobody else I've ever seen. Would please be a part of my godly family. He doesn't ask us to join his family because we're so gifted or so smart or so good or so moral. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a child. By the way, we recognize this. When he says that, he's not talking about a child's innocence, right? Have you met a two-year-old? Oh, those selfish little monsters. We love them. But you don't even have to teach them how to do wrong. It's not about their innocence. It's about their vulnerability. How long would they survive without us? Not a day. But yet often people... Want to just receive the kingdom of God and pretend like, hey, God, we've got it from here. Here's the second part, though. The kingdom of God is something that we enter. Did you notice that word in the text? 
It enter into it. It's not just heaven. Like, hey, I got a ticket and I'm about to enter heaven at the end of my life. And that's when I really need Jesus so that I can go to heaven because the alternative isn't very good. Entering the kingdom of God is entering relationship with Jesus where daily we depend on him like little kids who are vulnerable to say, God, I don't got this day. I need your help. God, would you lift me up? God, would you help me? God, would you teach me? See, sometimes people only go halfway and they're like, yeah, yeah, I want to receive this salvation, but I certainly don't want to enter into this family and enter into this kingdom and adopt the family values and follow in such a way that he's my parent and I just simply follow his instructions. So I want to be really, really clear about this. Point number four is this, that Christians who live vulnerably with Jesus, they have these four components. The first is this, they recognize themselves as being vulnerable. They recognize that they can't save themselves. There's nothing they can do to earn God's favor. There's no amount of good deeds that we can do to counterbalance our sin. And here's what I find so fascinating. I mean, we actually hate being vulnerable. I think we love being self-reliant. It feels so American. It feels so honorable. But the truth is this. We are all the vulnerable. It just takes one phone call from a doctor to prove it. We realize our bodies are diseased and broken. It takes one bad moment on the road where we run off the road to go, oh, I'm vulnerable. It takes a boss who fires us. It takes our own addiction that we never saw coming. It takes a moment where our kids actually veer off path and start wandering from Christ to realize we don't have control and how vulnerable we are. It just takes an interaction with a violent person to remind us that we're mortal and life is short. And I think in that moment we realize that Jesus is the one that we want and the only one that can save us. But until we stop pretending to be in control, Like, we've got it all together. He says, the only way you approach me to receive this gift of salvation and enter into the kingdom right here, right now, is with hands up to say, God, help me. I can't do this. You've already done it for me on the cross. And so I receive it freely. So Christians who live vulnerably with Jesus, they recognize themselves as being the vulnerable. The second thing is they receive the free gift of salvation. Third, they enter into a daily dependent relationship with Jesus. Which means that we are spending time so that we can know Jesus, know who he is, how much he loves us, what he desires for our lives, so that we might know how he created us, so that we might live this life for him, to honor him, because that's actually the the most purposeful, fulfilling life that that we could actually live. It's the thing that we crave. We spend time with him so we could learn his family values, so that we could live a life that honors him. And then, lastly, we begin to change the world as he empowers us by this, by embracing others as equals in God's family. He wants you to change the world. He wants you to look at all the vulnerable around him and say, you know, Jesus has a place in his kingdom for you. Would you join him? So question, have you actually recognized that you are the spiritually vulnerable? That you're not as strong as you think you are. 
Have you received this gift of salvation and entered into a life with Jesus? If not, here's my invitation. Why not today? Why not do it right now? What's keeping you from that? Are you unsure whether Jesus really died on a cross? Are you unsure if he really came back to life? Because that's the pivotal event in history, witnessed by hundreds of people, documented. It's a historical, I'm going to call it a historical fact, because the amount of evidence that it's true. If that's not true, this is all a waste of time. Can I ask you this? Are some of you just pretending that you wanted that salvation and that gift, but you never truly entered into relationship with them? So let's do it today. See, it's not a prayer, but the prayer is the starting place where we say, Jesus, forgive me. I believe your death on the cross paid for my sins. And because of that death on the cross, I know that when you look at me, you see me as innocent. He loves you. And because of that resurrection, one day he will come and take you home to a place that he's created for you. But it's for his family. But not until we see ourselves as the vulnerable. If you have a relationship with Jesus, um, here's what we're going to do. We often do this as a way of remembering and thanking him. We, we take communion. Communion is this. It's bread. And it's juice. But it's so much more than that. It's the symbol of his body that was broken on the cross, and it's the juice that symbolizes his blood that was shed for our sins. And so we eat and we drink in remembrance and in a way of thanking him for what he's done for us. Now, if you're a follower of Christ, if you've received salvation and you have entered into this relationship with him, you don't have to be a part of our church. Just you're a follower of Jesus, so you're welcome to join us at any one of these tables and, and receive communion. And if you're not yet a Christian and you're contemplating this, if today's the day that you're going to cross a line of faith and be like, you know what, I believe it, I'm in, then you too can join us for your first communion with us. I hope that in this moment that there's some of you that it's becoming clear to you and God's grabbing your heart that you've got to receive and you have to enter in to this relationship and if today's the day you're going to cross the line, can I say one more thing about this? There's never an anonymous crossing of the line. It's always sharing it with somebody so that we can welcome you into his family, so we can encourage you, so that we can walk with you. And so don't be anonymous. Whoever you came with, tell them today. If you came with a friend or a family member, tell them that you're praying that right now. Email me, scottchurchonthehill.com. I would love to hear from you. But don't let it be a secret. Because it's when that secret is released to say, listen, I gave my life to Christ. God will start changing you from the inside out. So let's celebrate communion. Let's celebrate Jesus' sacrifice so that we could be saved and enter into a relationship with him. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you um, for these moments in life. Even the hard ones, God, where we feel really vulnerable because it's in those moments that we're reminded how much we need you every day. And Jesus, we also want to just say thank you for giving, giving up your life for our sin. God, we remember today what it cost you so that we could have life, so that we could have forgiveness, so that we could have this daily relationship with you. And God, would you give us courage to turn our whole lives over to you? 
And if you agree with that, would you say amen?